Welcome to the Slightly Educated Podcast. I'm Brandon Long. Today I'm talking with Howard Cromwell, who is a neuroscientist at BGSU. He does most of his research on the dopamine reward system. And there's a couple interesting things there that we talk about, uh, mainly gambling and addiction, and why those are two problems that are very difficult to understand and interact with and solve. We get really in-depth with the terminology, so I hope you don't shy away from this one because of that. One definition to keep in mind is the basal ganglia, which is a brain region that has to do with enabling and disabling movement. Uh, we also talk about ethology, which is interviewing animals in their own habitat rather than the lab. And of course, we talk about frustrating rats and how exactly you do that in the lab. So, all interesting stuff. Let's start. Okay, so I'm here with Howard Cromwell, who is a neuro, uh, neuroscientist uh, here at BGSU, and uh, he mostly studies uh, dopamine and reward systems, and that's mostly what we're going to talk about today. Um, but if you want to just go ahead and briefly introduce yourself and uh, talk about how you got into neuroscience. Sure, sure. So. Howard Casey Cromwell. I'm an associate professor here in Department of Psychology uh, at BGSU, Bowling Green State University. Um, I'm the director of what we've called now for about 10 years the Biology of Affect and Motivation Laboratory here at BGSU. And uh, how I got into all this is quite a long story, but briefly, um, I got a PhD at University of Michigan um, in the biopsychology program. And, you know, really got hooked on the research at that point. Um, and we were studying the brain basis of hedonics and uh, pleasure using taste reactivity as a measure in the rodent model. And one of my earliest findings um, that uh, I think is still pretty important is that these uh, areas of hedonics uh, are located in an area or not located, but are heavily involved with a brain region called the basal ganglia. And as uh, Brandon was saying, this area receives a flood of dopamine um, when we're experiencing something pleasurable. Now, my PhD advisor, though, um, at University of Michigan, really found out with some of his own research that these so-called pleasure signals with dopamine could also be reinterpreted as what he calls wanting signals, or signals of how can I get it and get it quickly and, and efficiently. And so he, he, his research, and I agree with, uh, he's my advisor of course, so I have to agree with his take on dopamine in that uh, from my earliest uh, readings and work on this, that it is a compound that is heavily involved in this wanting signal. Um, and so right away in my graduate studies, I was introduced to dopamine, pleasure, and wanting, and trying to figure out how, how all these things were interrelated. Um, and then, so my background isn't real brief now, but I'm getting into some of the science on the way. Yeah, uh, I'll jump forward to another, uh, uh, what, what we do in our area is a postdoctoral fellowship that I stayed for about three and a half to four years with a researcher over in... Uh, Switzerland. His name is Dr. Wolfram Schultz, um, who, when, when I first started reading his work, 
also focused on dopamine signals in this special area of the brain called basal ganglia. And he talked about them as key regions of reward processing. And part of that is how we predict rewards. And Dr. Schultz's work um, was really focused, um, well, the majority, not, not all of it, but uh, dopamine is a prediction signal. So I spent three or four years in his lab learning about the same system, the basal ganglia, uh, the dopamine in input into this area, and how it could be involved as a prediction signal which seemed to make a lot of sense and, and seems to fit in in some ways with the liking and the wanting as well. Um, and then, uh, I'll skip other years, but then I arrived at Bowling Green State, set up my own lab, and we've been studying some of the same questions. Um, I, I, I work with the rodent models mainly, and I couch the basal ganglia function in terms of a process I call incentive contrast and think about it as a way that we compare rewards over time um, and really focus on reward processing still. We typically don't do anything in our lab aversive to the animals. We like to have all the animals be happy just like the graduate students and faculty. But <laughs> they get a little bit frustrated and upset when just the reward level decreases or downshifts. The graduate students? Or the no, the, the <laughs> subjects. Well, the graduate students too. We all do. But um, you're right. So, so in our lab, we've been studying this reward downshift where they get more mildly frustrated. Sometimes we do get frustrated because we, we haven't frustrated them enough, but the animal subjects, and we try to see whether the, the brain signals, in particular areas in the basal ganglia, are encoding these comparable upshifts and downshifts. And part of my agenda is to examine whether the brain does this parametrically and consistently. Um, and some of our data show that, that this might be the case. And so uh, I can get into that in more detail, but um, we're really trying to drill down into how the brain makes these comparisons with uh, between or among sets of rewards over time. So it's uh, uh, relational, and so any reward is always compared to other rewards? Is that how it's...? Right, and we've been using magnitude as kind of the main upshift and downshift, and we uh, food restrict the animals, uh, so that's kind of important, and we can do that to different levels, but typically we've been clamping that so that all the subjects get food at a predictable time, and they kind of also know how much they're supposed to get. Um, they work for these food items, and then still in a predictable fashion. We haven't really been mixing up non-predictability or lack of prediction in our scheme yet, but uh, that would be something that we, we plan to look at in the future. But we basically, in a predictable fashion, do these upshifts and downshifts. So when you say upshift and downshift, what is that uh, exactly? Um... So with food magnitude, we use these tiny little food pellets. Um, with some of my other research, we used to use more natural food items like pieces of banana or cheese or raisins and things like this. But right now, just for, for the sake of exact control, we use 45 milligram food pellets. We give them one food pellet and we give that over a series of days and then all of a sudden uh, we'll give a cue that they already know about that increases food pellet magnitude, um, for example, three or five pellets. Um, and we see this elation effect or positive contrast. They'll work hard for the five pellets 
Um, we've been trying to identify some of their emotional indicators of um, how they actually are uh, changing their emotional state after receiving the five pellets and looking at a number of dependent measures or uh, what we call dependent measures, but um, behavioral indicators of greater motivation after they receive that. Now the trick with incentive contrast is that we attempt to have a control condition and this is usually within subject where they get five pellets consistently in kind of an absolute non-relational context sort of a set of trials where you get five pellets and we take and this gets kind of crude in the behavioral sense but we take a mean uh, level of responding for their motivational indicators or their emotional state and when that mean shifts either with a single subject over trials or with a group of subjects over even a group of trials then we say the rats are showing this positive contrast effect with five pellets they're responding in a way when uh, they're more motivated more more receiving possibly a greater hedonic uh, reaction to that five pellets than they were when they were getting that without that relational component. So uh, upshifting is when they are uh, getting more hedonic or more responsive to food, and then right. shifting is when they're less responsive? Right, okay. right. So okay. we can do the reverse then, and you can't go below one typically from breaking up these pellets. So we would start an animal um, with five pellets consistently and then downshift them to one. We've done a number of these. And, and we're not the only ones. There's actually a rich history of this using rodent models. Um, and it's ant primate, turtle, honeybees, lots of animals do this. So uh, shifting from 10 down to five, shifting from five to one, shifting to 10 to one. And that's kind of the parametric quality there. Part of my, uh, because when say Dr. Schultz, who I worked with or uh, advisor at Michigan or other people in the literature, they talk about reward processing as kind of this general ability of us to feel the reward almost in a dichotomous, you know, yes or no state, and then not experience the reward. And so what, what we're trying to get into is, is again, this, do you feel half as bad when you go from 10 to 5? Uh, do you feel 10% as bad when you go from 10 to 10 to 1? Um, and can you even get down, you know, to lower levels of negative contrast as you go to a percentage under 1, for example? How sensitive are we to these shifts, and 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 we can monitor that with our behavior, um, with with measures of latency to the millisecond, and then we're trying to get this to the level of action potentials as well, and rate of action potential firing or a different pattern, and trying to map that. So that's one of my major interests right now. So you're looking at how um, these dopamine responses, when they go up or down, um, how they affect uh, uh, from the bottom up, like the action potential of the actual neuron, and then the behavior as well. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, um, if I have this right, um, so you have like a, a say a monkey in a lab, and okay. uh, you they know that when like a buzzer comes on, they they can do a certain action and they'll get food. Um, right. The um, uh, what do you think? What do you take on the um, the fact that like the anticipation is more rewarding um, in terms of uh, like amount of dopamine uh, in their system? There's mm -hmm. more more of a dopamine response uh, for the anticipation, right, than the reward, is there? So, according to the, to the prediction theory, um, the, the dopamine signal changes. There's plasticity of the dopamine signal dependent upon the learning. 
so as a novice that comes into the situation and it fits with the monkey because that's been one of the experimental subjects but also with rat and then there's even human neuroimaging to say this is pretty consistent with what happens in human as well so there's really consistent data across species um, that in the initial iterations when we're learning uh, the dopamine is really linked to the reward itself so this is typically a food item in the animal work and then I know with uh, some of the neuroimaging they're using some of the the money for example um, a lot of times it's hypothetical money but you've just Still won some response yeah yeah <laughs> to, <you> a know, <laughs> to a degree you're right right probably quantitatively it would be much bigger if you actually handed them the money right away um, but then as the individual learns so there can be so many different cues in the environment but in these controlled laboratory situations and with the animals I'm talking about we have so much control so we use tones we can use lights we can use complex visual stimuli and they precede these reward outcomes um, you can make this very predictable and so you know let's create the most predictable environment we can so we have a hundred percent relationship between a cue and an outcome um, we have something that's highly discriminable from anything the animals ever experienced before and bingo you'll get a switch some of the data out there is shown from the Schultz lab uh, that this can be within a single session and you can watch the do you know that's kind of the fun experimental day when you're in there to seeing the dopamine signal sort of just shift back to the cue and disappear to the reward itself so that, that occurs with learning, so like the more comfortable the animal is with knowing it will get the reward, the, the less dopamine for the reward, right? The or dopamine shifts. So they're, they're, the dopamine response basically decreases to the reward itself and becomes a potent response, time-locked, or seen in the same time as the cue or this predictive event or object or whatever it is. Um, what um, what yeah. do you see... Um, uh, as being like the benefit of that happening like from a biological like evolutionary perspective uh, um, like I guess what what why is the re why does the uh, dopamine need to uh, um, shift to the uh, anticipation more than uh, well the, the the theory one of the one of the uh, major ideas that, in, that this theory sort of moves into psychology is all about classical conditioning in some cases how we actually end up using prediction in our lives and in many ways how we're using prediction in a classical conditioning framework without us even being aware of what we're actually predicting. So dopamine can do this of course with a number of signals and cues in our lives that either we have as our habit um, or as we have as something that we could think of as a reflexive sort of um, response to uh, these events and cues that are predicting things in our lives um, and psychology for a long time so all the way back to early notions of classical conditioning has shown that without our ability to be able to predict we're, we're in big trouble this isn't just our volitional explicit knowledge of the world these are our autonomic nervous system predictions uh, for you know what we want to eat what we're going to digest this these are all the predictions throughout our body that allow us to prepare our body for good and bad things that are upcoming in the environment so this is happening all the time psychology has emphasized this um, uh, for a long time so finding out that the dopamine is possibly a key signal of this 
is basically giving us the biological underpinnings of a key psychological process that um, uh, is, is part of our everyday lives. And then, of course, a big part of uh, mental il- the pathology of mental illness as well. Yeah, it fits, fits right in with um, the idea of you getting comfortable with uh, a certain task and reward and mm-hmm. just getting kind of bored with it uh, eventually, right? Um, right, right. So, you know, in our real lives, yep, we can, we can have 100% predictability, but it's quite rare. Um, so, you know, typically in our real lives, these things are changing a lot, you know, having a whole realm of probabilities. And, but there are cases where we have boredom. We could imagine, you know, um, I guess this area hasn't been studied as much as it could, but we could imagine the dopamine system going offline in a hypothetical world where everything is 100% predictive and even the uh, cues, the dopamine signal to the cues eventually just fade away because there's no, in the learning prediction model, there's no learning yet to be had on this. In the, in the experimental models, and the work that's there can easily show that the dopamine signal can get ramped back up when there's a new cue that predicts the old cue. And in the other case, when there's a chain of cues, it sort of keeps moving backward in time to allow for greater and greater prediction that's earlier and earlier in time. Okay. And, and so that's probably continually happening. And then uh, the other experimental manipulation is that they take away the 100% and see how much of the dopamine is left when you start to vary things between zero and 100%, and seeing that in a more real-life case scenario, the dopamine signal is, is perpetuated in time, always trying to figure out, is the predictive quality of this, how much is it changing, and how much dopamine do I need to keep this going as a learning signal? Is this is something that's a valid predictive signal. So you're saying uh, dopamine is, is kind of a driver of uh learning um, uh, predictive behaviors to uh, uh, kind of exploit the environment, you could say. Right, um, yeah. Yep. It's, it's kind of, uh, you were just talking about unpredictability. Um, and uh, don't you see that uh, when you have like, a, there's like a 50, uh, an animal does a certain action to get a reward, and uh, there's like a 50% chance that it'll get a pellet or not. Do you see like, do you see higher spikes of dopamine? Um, is that a response to try to figure out how to get uh, the reward more predictably? That'd be a, a good analysis of that, or yeah. So fifty-fifty is is tricky. Then, so we can imagine the subject actually understanding the fifty-fifty or flipping a coin, um, and and in some ways, with, with humans, for example, we we could imagine that we have this knowledge actually because someone's told us, for example, that this there's no ability to predict in this particular case. Um, hypothetically, dopamine should basically not be playing a role in many ways, right? So that's a reward prediction error hypothesis in some ways. It would be giving us the error when we're 50% no reward and then a signal 50% reward, but in hopes of gaining information here that there's something beyond 50-50. Once we're aware of that, um, you know, the dopamine signal is basically saying that being able to predict, um, it's not going to be playing a, a role. Now, in, in human and animal models, it's not necessarily the case. It's almost as if the dopamine signal kind of goes up and goes back down. It goes back up, goes back down. And in, in the animal model case, it's very difficult to, to embed this kind of 
50-50 knowledge. In some ways, that the animals are always either pessimistic or optimistic and playing mm -hmm. a, a larger role of their of their stochastic kind of probabilities and trying to figure out, you know, is there some movement away from 50-50? Um, yeah, because even with uh, gambling, uh, you can fully explain to them, and they probably know how dismal their, their right. odds are, but they, right. they still partaking it. And so we have we have these natural tendencies. And so we could think about the dopamine system embedded into uh, either these, these primal or instinctual tendencies to uh, and, and embed within the personality that we have uh, a natural bent toward loss aversion and, um, you know, being risk averse um, and, you know, uh, personality types here, hedging our bets that it's going to be less than Fifty or low probability, uh, based on the way they read the environment, um, and then other individuals through experience, all of a sudden being risk prone. And um, I don't know if you want to say uh, seeking loss, because <laughs> that doesn't make sense. But I mean, it doesn't make sense in many ways. But then when we look at pathological gambling, we point to that and we go, "Yeah, that's it." Uh, what's their dopamine system like? And that is a major area of research. Actually, we're getting into that a little bit as well, kind of with our incentive contrast in ways that we think animals are insensitive to contrast. They're not paying attention to the comparisons. And so we've tried to look at uh, particular animal models or mo uh, animals with particular experiences, seeing how it changes their ways that they should naturally be tuned into these upshifts and downshifts and the ways that they should respond, either be more motivated or give up. Um, and it's a it's a major area of research, um, and you might want to know answers like, well, how does the dopamine system change in pathological gambling? Um, I think this is one of those answers I have to say to be determined. There's definitely a way to say that they seem to be um, hypersensitive to reward in some cases. They seem to be uh, exaggerated responses to wins, um, and uh, sort of a pathological or atypical way that they're altered in their predictability, looking at 50-50s or below 50% as something they're learning about or finding rewarding. Uh, so those kinds of findings are there, but um, they're, they're tricky to study, and, and animal models of gambling are hard. We've actually been trying to do it in the lab, and you know one of my take-home messages on that? What's that? that most of the animals are too smart to gamble. Really? So, you know, they're just very risk averse. Um, when they get zero, they don't go back to that outcome. So you have to be as smart as a primate to be stupid enough to gamble? <laughs> even a rat, even a rat. So talking about some of the rat models we've been doing recently. Um, so, you know, it's hard to study then in, in our controlled environments. What people do are stress the animal models, have a developmental cascade of events they're exposed to. And uh, so uh, it's, it's really tricky in that way. And uh, you want to uh, kind of figure out uh, the age old question is like, was, did the gambler choose to gamble or was the gambler already predisposed to right. uh, gamble? And uh, right. yeah, that's kind of, that's an interesting area. In general addiction, and usually pharmacological addiction, there's some evidence to show that individuals with high risk, that is with, uh, family members who um, uh, have been uh, diagnosed with addiction, addiction disorders, 
um, show different brain profiles. The, the one related to dopamine, for example, that's still in our textbooks, and it's been, it's been validated with, with several studies, is that individuals have actually a, a ramped down dopamine system that some of their, uh, uh, prior to showing their addictive behavior, they seem to have fewer receptors, for example, for dopamine in some of these regions like the basal ganglia and the forebrain. And so part of the explanation has been from this perspective imaging research, for example, that these uh, uh, high-risk individuals have a greater need for stimulation. This is kind of the sensation-seeking answer of a personality type, that they go down that pathway with the uh, particular experiences because their brain needs that. Uh, it needs that 50-50 or less to get excited. Uh, do you, have you done any um, looking into how like context plays into um, dopamine reward? And uh, I, guess, I guess it's looked into a lot in uh, addiction, like um, yes, people uh, used to like drink in a certain place and they're... Right. Uh, they go back in that setting, not necessarily even like uh, uh, other people like egging, egging them on, but like just the certain situation or place, location, um, um, re, kind of re um, puts back in them the want to uh, go back into those bad habits. Right, right. Um, so in in, a f in the field called psychopharmacology, and a lot of the work again using animal models, uh, looking at things like condition tolerance, for example. Um, where an individual is uh, uh, more likely to uh, well, survive in some cases, but be able to handle physiologically a dose of a drug uh, because they're in a certain location, because they've had experience with that drug with these, paired with these, uh, these, these cues. Uh, and it, some of the research points back to the dopamine signal here. Um, and points back to the predictive cues that the dopamine um, is working through a network in the basal ganglia and other regions in the brain to prepare the body uh, to be able to handle that drug dose. Uh, this is kind of a brain and body then a whole physiological response that enables the individual to, um, if you just took the injection of the heroin as an example, it's clearly been shown and you know uh, there's just so many cases of this uh, uh, from the human, um, you know, uh, anecdotes, I guess, from the human addicts. Uh, but the, the animal models clearly show that, uh, you know, the specific cues can be powerful, that the, the dopamine signals um, that enable, that, that are part of the response to the cues but it's, it's more than that, of course. It's, it's probably a host of neurochemicals that are involved in this condition tolerance. Um, and, uh, and then the other flip side, uh, or sort of conditioned high, it's not, in my mind, from what I've read, not as much research on that. Um, it's almost as if, uh, in, it, 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 you know, if you take that to an extreme in your mind, uh, you could almost go into a location and then not need your drug. Um, this is kind of a uh, exaggerated take on what conditioned high might be. You have the cues and they actually replace the hedonics or the euphoric reaction of the drug. Um, this, has been, this has been another area of research. It also involves dopamine, but other compounds. I guess you could throw out another neurochemical um, that we call the endogenous opiates, 
um, like enkephalin and endorphin that can be released in response to particular cues um, and might give someone, for example, this natural high uh, or a conditioned high. Um, and so those avenues of research, I think, are really exciting in, in reward processing. Uh, to me, they involve prediction. Uh, they also involve an individual just retrieving a memory, I think. That's where I've kind of gained that with incentive contrast as well, just uh, not that we need to manipulate prediction, but we need to understand how, how much these cues, uh, what the kind of representations of those cues are in terms of um, how much of a rewarding response uh, in relation to another cue or another experience. So, um, and some of my colleagues have said that I'm studying something that is probably key to the whole phenomenon of reward processing and drug addiction and so on, but it's so complex that we may not even have the neural uh, ways to manipulate or monitor this kind of and, and with some of our data, I almost agree, because I see some of the effects, but we haven't really been able to find the, the parametric kind of relationship that I've been looking for yet. I keep thinking we don't have the right behavioral paradigm yet to really Yeah, because certainly, um, I mean, you can get um, lab animals to just not even uh, participate in some, like, reward games if you uh, um, inhibit their dopamine. So it seems like the answer is somewhere there to, right. to fix uh, addiction. But... Uh, exactly where is anyone's guess. Right, right. Pharmaceutical manipulations are definitely at the at the forefront right now, but they seem to be kind of gross, kind of primitive in a way that we know that the brain is so much more delicate and and precise in the way that they're handling this information. Um, and so that's that's going to be a trick in the future, I think. Uh, so um, something I ask all scientists usually is that, uh, so do you... Um, uh, do you partake in the science because it's something that is uh, gratifying itself, or is it um, you're just trying to discover new, I guess you could say, truths, or do you like what it can do for like humanity as a whole? Well, yeah, I'd like to hear some of the other answers. It's, it's, um, I, think, I think people have to answer, uh, honestly, they have to answer both. We, we, I think sometimes you start out with the furtherance of knowledge and your own basic kind of uh, research interests, like, uh, you know, looking back as an early student and learning about it, um, at least in my mind, I think, unless, you know, some individuals, I guess, have more of an experience with particular uh, illnesses and get involved in the medical side. But for me, at least, I was involved in the basic research and really learning from classroom settings about the mystery of the brain and so I guess the first question was, uh, in the classroom, how does the brain work? And then when you get done with the class, you're sort of saying, well, we didn't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I'm still doing that. I start the class, you know, and then we end and we don't know. And so, you know, I, I told some colleagues as well, isn't this kind of ridiculous? But, you know, we won't retire until we figure out how the brain works. <laughs> I, think, I think this relational, I think neural relativity is, is a key component that's been underlooked, uh, under under examined. Um, so uh, so I think we could make huge breakthroughs with what I'm calling. There isn't really that term out there so much, but 
neural relativity and, and the reward side of that. So how it interacts with everything, the environment and every the whole slew of... But, but doing it in a well-controlled manner so that we know what the relative context is and then we compare it to an absolute context in the lab. And, 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 and so I think that's one of the things that the brain does and how it works, at least within the psychological way it's been uh, not explored in a lot of detail. Um, and then as I remember my advisor coming in graduate school, he said, well, we're going to be working on the basal ganglia system. I said, well, what does that do? He said, look up Parkinson and Huntington's disease. Uh, when dopamine is gone and the signal isn't there, the basal ganglia, people don't move. They move slowly first and then they stop moving altogether and they become rigid. And, I, and we were studying Parkinson models, really, um, and movement sequencing with basal ganglia. But what ended up, what ended up really um, just overwhelming this research was figuring out the same brain region is, has all these reward signals to it. And this reward expectancy signal, which you've been talking about and we've been, think, we've been thinking about, that is just really cool when, you, when you're looking at it because you, when you play the cue and you're listening to the neuron, um, it just begins with a cue and then it just continues as neural firing until the reward is obtained. And this can be over a matter of seconds. And we've even sort of prolonged that time period, you know, for tens of seconds. And it's as if this neuron sees something, hears something, experiences something, and just stays active until it gets what it wants. Hmm. And to me, it just didn't fit into the Parkinson's and Huntington's scheme uh, for basal ganglia. So part of my PhD work and the title of my dissertation was Functional Heterogeneity of this Basal Ganglia System, was that there's a, there are these motor subsets, uh, regions that are critical for movement onset, movement termination, movement sequencing, but then there's this reward processing sub-areas. And when we looked into Parkinson's and Huntington's, we found out these reward deficits. I've been talking with some students just this past week on gambling disorder in Parkinson's patients when they start to take their dopamine elevating uh, treatments and seeing that the rise of pathological gambling is actually significantly higher, especially with early stage Parkinson's patients than anyone would ever expect. So that's sort of where you have this motor neurological disorder and then all of a sudden their treatments impacting their reward processing ability. Do you want to um, talk about, uh, um, I don't know if you have an answer for this, but uh, what's like the most profound um, thing that you've discovered in your research that you, if you have anything about that? Um, I think, uh, I mean, I think one of, one of our recent findings, I just think it was a, a really neat study using the RAP model. Uh, we ended up in, uh, developing a naturalistic environment up in our laboratory. It's about 10 to 12 feet long that we put the animals in. And to me, it's one of the first cases where we've been studying the animals in an environment where they, we actually have them run around the environment in different locations to get different rewards. It's so hard to do with um, other animal models, but in the rat, we sort of have this naturalistic little tube-like environment. And I call it the self-pacing, sort of free-foraging choice environment. We're trying to think of a shorter name. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, but I don't yeah. have to uh, make the titles of the papers anymore if you're going to name it that long. <laughs> I know. They're all, yeah. And we ran the animals over a series of weeks, and we ended up 
deciding that their free choice is divided up into different rewardabilities where and and they can be separable so we have their ability to discriminate between the two reward outcomes and we can show that they can easily do, do this but then if we make them harder they start to generalize and show you know more equalized choice but then once they discriminate we think that that's necessary though to move into abilities to make preferences so they have to be able to make the difference there and they do that quite well in most scenarios and then once they can do that and they do that the best they start to show a preference um, and then with these two uh, or decision-making qualities in the reward process they also impact and we were studying at the same time across weeks this incentive contrast ability and we we showed that when they're showing the most optimal choice getting the most food over the rate of time all three of these, discrimination, preference, and incentive contrast, are working together and optimizing. Um, but we showed when we made the outcomes more difficult and discrimination broke down, so did preference and incentive contrast. And then we made, uh, then we made a perturbation in this area of the basal ganglia and showed that um, all three of these could be altered um, so that this area in the brain seems to be integrating information at different levels. Taking the magnitude between two rewards is something important. Taking an experience with preference and placing this on top to make what we call a value hierarchy. And then once the value hierarchy is there, being able to take this and use your experience with what I just had on that hierarchy to make a decision about whether this value ranking is appropriate or not. And even shifting up and down on the hierarchy depending upon and that's real complicated, I know, and, a keen, and, and maybe it's one of the reasons some of my best findings aren't as popular as they are right now, because we're still trying to figure out how to say this <laughs> in a 30-second in a time bit. But we called the title of the paper is Fractionating Free Choice. And to me, it's kind of groundbreaking because it does divide choice into these different kinds of what I call reward processing components. Start to talk about how they're interrelated start to talk about how a key region in the brain, it's a striatum actually, it's not the dopamine cells per se, but the striatum receives dopamine. We're, we're trying to look at how dopamine is a key player in this, but how these neurons in the striatum are integrating the information to optimize decision making and choice. Okay. That's a recent, it's two or three years old, uh, but I thought it's really, it's really cool. It's caught my super interest. It's, it's caught some interest of, out there in neuroscience right now. So it's so it's complex. <laughs> you can't, it's, so it's too complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and so sometimes we just have to realize the brain is complex, and that uh, a lot of the uh, the sound bites for these are going to be more than a few seconds. Are going to be yeah. a couple of minutes to realize the importance of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it seems <laughs> like with that study you were trying to get. Um, that was one of my questions. Was uh, um, what. Uh, what do you think about the field that is uh, uh, more trying to get rats in their natural uh, environment rather than, because uh, like a, a big critique is that, um, oh, uh, you noticed a 30% shrinkage in this brain region when you yeah. did this, at, when, it, when this happened in this rat instead of this rat. Yeah. But uh, if you look at the actual rat world, like it's like 70% bigger than you know, right. pretty right. much both of the rats. Um, it's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. I could just lecture on that forever. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of ethology. Big uh, eth ethology in the ethological tradition is observation of animals in the natural world. 
do I actually do that or use it? No, but I try in the lab settings uh, to do that. So this was one case in point. We also um, have a rich history here at Bowling Green State University. I have to mention another researcher's name just then for, for all of this, posterity, uh, Dr. Yak Pengsep. I don't know if that name rings a bell for you, but he was a researcher here at BGSU for about 25 years. And he uh, advocated that animals have the same primal basic emotions. All animals share these, so rats and humans, all they have the same uh, basic emotions. Um, and we have the same brain substrates that are producing these basic primal emotions. Um, humans have uh, an encephalization that can change how these emotions operate, but we still at the root of our brain, and really did focus on the brain stem, I guess it's not the root then, um, where these primal basic emotions are. But he kept trying over and over and over again to study more naturalistic behaviors. Case in point, uh, play in rats, and he was one of the first researchers to look at rat play. They only do this for about two or three weeks of their lives, uh, well, maybe three or four, um, in about the first month, a month and a half. So you have to catch them when they're young, little juvenile rats, put them together with litter mates, and they'll jump on each other and tackle, and it looks like wrestling and aggression, but they'll take turns and tap on each other's soldier, shoulders, do rats have shoulders? Or the little area. Yeah, yeah they, do. they do. They do. Pretty so, tiny, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he, was, he focused on that. And he said that if you look in a burrow environment, visible burrow, if you look at some of the rat models, they play. And then, of course, you know, other people picked this up. But, and there was already a sort of ecological literature on this. But uh, animal play in the wild has, has been kind of a neat area of research. But doing it in the lab. Then he looked at neurochemistry of play and the brain basis of play. Um, I worked with him a little bit. Um, uh, while he was still here. He passed away about a year and a half ago, um, Dr. Panksepp. Another case in point is, and we did a project on this too, talking about using a naturalistic stimuli. Um, he said, why don't, other people have brought a cat into the lab. You know, what do rats, what are rats afraid of? Um, cats or dogs. Um, but um, to make it more systematic, instead of the whole cat, we clipped cat hair and put cat hair in a little vial that then would emanate uh, or the uh, odor would disseminate from the container. Um, Panksepp published 20 years ago, you put the cat hair in a uh, lab rat's cage and they just freeze. Uh, they, they won't move. Um, you put it in the juvenile rat's cage uh, where they've actually experienced play or in the midst of their play and they just stop. So they have an instinctual hardwired program. Yeah. These are lab rats bred in these distributors in a, in, that have never experienced a cat, for sure. Um, and their response to that, I don't think I've ever seen anything so dramatic in, a, in an animal model before. Yeah, those are, those are very interesting because in some cases you have scenari uh, scenarios where like humans can, they've learned negative associations with like, uh, I think it's snakes um, mm -hmm. very quickly, but it's not, it's not innate like with the rats, with the rats, they don't. They, it's just there. Yeah. Which, that's that's whole another. What is the hole. unconditioned response of fear in human? That is tricky. It's actually surprised me over the years to think about what we're scared of, or what we should be scared of. I bring this up in some classes. Um, we've actually watched the video of, of the, um, 
of John Watson's work with Little Albert. There are some videos online you mm -hmm. can see on this. I was always struck that, you know, when he's doing his classical conditioning experience with this Little Albert, that Albert's not afraid of the animals that he puts down in front of Albert until he pairs it with a loud noise behind Albert's head. That was his classical conditioning. So loud noises, for sure. Um, you know, we're all born with this kind of uh, parachute-like movement there when we hear a big bang behind our head. Also, I think looming stimuli have been looked at in young infants, and, and consistently we have this uh, kind of autonomic fear response, dilation of the pupils at least. But yeah, sometimes other than that, we would think that um, like a like a baby rat, we should we should automatically, reflexively be scared of. Um, but there are some things, and so uh, that's where Pengsep says there's a link, and that we do have unconditioned response fear network, and then it quickly, for humans, probably very quickly gets linked to conditioned cues, and on the positive side of things, dopamine can take over. On the negative side, Pengsep studied a whole network of fear areas, and there's there's so many different researchers out there who are looking at, at this, of course. Well, that's about all we have. That's right okay. about 45. Again, thanks for your time.